Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. All right, we are going to begin. My name is Margot Landman. I'm with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you here. I would request that if you have not already done so, please silence your phones so that they do not ring in the middle of the program. We are very fortunate today, on June 4th, 29 years later, to have the opportunity to talk about current students from China in the United States and what happens to them if and when they go home. Peggy Blumenthal is with the Institute of International Education, which has been tracking student flows forever. And David Zweig is at the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, where he has been studying for the last few years the other direction. Chinese do or do they not go home, and what happens to them if they do, or when they do. It's now 27 years that I've been doing this. For 27 years, <laughs> but who's counting? Right. So I will turn it over to the two of you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Margot. I'm going to start and try relatively briefly to give you the context of Chinese students in U.S. campuses and leaving the weird students. Marty. Marty. I need most of the time for David to talk about the much more interesting question of whether students and how students are going home. Um, we have at IIE we've been tracking international student flows to the United States uh, forever. That is to say, we were founded in 1919 and began the census even then. And the top sending country for uh, international students in the United States in 1920 was China, by a long, long shot, and remained for many, many years. Um, today, as you'll see up here, the, large, the top sending country is again China. Of the million students in the United States from abroad, uh, over 350,000 of them are from China. Um, the next largest center, India, is, is half as many, and after that it drops precipitously. So China um, is, uh, was, is, and will likely remain a crucial part of the international student population in the United States. Um, looking just at the top Asian center, uh, centers of students, again, you see China way far ahead of, of India, and India way far ahead of everybody else. The important thing in this graph is that the numbers from China are rising, the numbers from India are rising, and everybody else is kind of flat, or going down, actually. Yeah, no, I'm much happier just letting people figure it out themselves, if that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> professors know how to do it in my no, no, I shake so much. Make them work harder. It's true. That's they right. More. They'll pay attention. Yes, I, absolutely. This is good this. <laughs> um, then break me down by academic level. Um, for many years, all of us who were in the China field knew that graduate students are who came to the United States, um, almost entirely graduate students. You see, undergraduates, the orange line uh, really was almost flat until the year 2000, and then stayed flat with that, and then picked up a lot. In 206, and now there are more undergraduates from China than there are graduate students. 
they also are increasing at a faster rate. You see the orange uh, up almost 6%. This is 216, 217 compared to the previous year. Graduate students starting to flatten out, but still up by 4%. The biggest growth is read optional practical training. And what that means are the people who have studied here and then stay on to work for either a year or two, or if you're in the sciences, you're now able to stay for up to three years um, for training in your field of study before you have to go home. Uh, you're, the reason we track this is you're still on a student visa. So the data we collect from US colleges and universities includes data on people they are sponsoring for PT. Uh, the next fastest growth is in non-degree um, students, and that would be people for intensive English, people coming for a certificate program, people coming for something other than a, a BA, MA, AA, or PhD. Um, so, moving on. Um, to cut to the current debate, um, our students getting as many visas as they used to get, and are Chinese students getting as many visas as they used to get, and will the new visa policy affect um, Chinese students coming to the United States? Um, for those of you who may have been reading about, I don't know, six months ago, maybe not even that long ago, there was a big article saying that numbers of visas have plummeted, and, and that means that nobody's getting to come to the United States. Well, when you look at the Chinese numbers, uh, the big dip happened in 214, 215, and that has nothing to do with our change in um, the, the desire to have them come. That had, actually was for good reason. Both China and the United States agreed to grant five visas for up to five years so that students could complete their degree without having to go back every year and get a renewed visa. Before then, if you were here a four-year program, you got a one-year visa, you then had to go back and renew it, and, and so on. Um, so the big drop is not that there were fewer Chinese students, it's just that the same students got a five-year visa, so they didn't have to keep coming every year. So that really, that drop has nothing to do with declining numbers. Um, the latest policy, uh, which has been semi-announced, but I think actually not officially announced, is that uh, President Trump has said that Chinese uh, students at the graduate level in certain STEM fields are only going to be able to get a one-year visa. And there's considerable concern in the US higher education field about what this will do and whether this means people won't come. Well, all I can say is that before they were getting five-year visas, the numbers kept going up. After their, we have no reason to think that this will be a major deterrent because the application process is the same. Students who in high-tech fields, in STEM fields, were always extremely carefully vetted. It took a long time for them to get the visas, and now they'll have to go back and renew them uh, every year instead of every five years. Um, I base my optimism also on a short um, tweet that came from the Wall Street Journal um, uh, reporter uh, based in Beijing who interviewed five or six students from China in these fields. And they said, oh, you know, as long as there's money, as long as they, the, the research is funded in the United States, as long as I'm still able to get a visa, this isn't going to make a difference. I don't know that six people make a scientific study, but that's, that's what she heard. Um, Another area in which Chinese students are coming in increasing numbers is at the high school level. Uh, again, it's, it's only 10% of the number who are coming at the university level, but still 33,000 Chinese uh, students are here at boarding school, some in public schools, most of them in boarding schools, far more than any other country. And those students 
are here primarily because they plan to go on to college. And once they go to college, they're probably going to stay for a master's. So it's a pipeline that's very important. Um, we recently surveyed U.S. campuses about what their concerns were about maintaining international enrollments um, based on changes or announced changes in, in the um, immigration policy. What we saw is not too surprising. The major concern was about students from the Middle East and North Africa because the travel ban that had been set up um, and announced was for six countries in the Middle East. Even in those six countries, however, it's been a carve-out for students who are uh, accepted into university. They are not affected by the ban. If you're accepted by a U.S. university and you're from Iran, you're still eligible for a visa. However, you know, the mood and the word on the street and the concerns and the parents' worries still, many people felt that it's going to cut down the numbers coming from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, the second largest was from Asia, excluding China and India. But still, there were about 30 percent. Uh, there were there were only 30 percent of respondents who said, I'm, "I'm not even worried about Chinese students being affected by this." So the 70 percent felt they did have some concerns. Um, when we asked what those concerns were, though, they were not really about um, whether they're going to keep coming. Many, I would say, most top-tier universities in the United States get far more applicants from China than they can possibly accept. So if the numbers drop by 50%, they'd still have to turn away half the students. It's that second and third tier institution that is going to be worried because they've been recruiting heavily in China, hoping that they would uh, be able to balance their own line and hoping that they can still have a, a healthy, diverse student body. So the top concern they did have, and this is my last slide, I think, is um, English language preparedness. Chinese students, particularly those coming to second and third tier institutions, are coming, even if they got a good TOEFL score, are not really fluent enough to participate actively in the classroom. Academic integrity, do they follow the same code? Do they, are they even aware of the same code of you have to cite your sources, you don't, quote, you don't work as a team on papers unless you're officially supposed to work as a team, all the usual things. Um, engaging students in the classroom discussion, major problem for students from all over Asia, Asia. Integrating them on campus, the larger the number of students from a certain country, the more they huddle together. This is true of Americans abroad, as well as international students here. And the authentication of applicant documents, the, the, the large amount of fraud that particularly um, occurs when agents are hired by universities or hired by parents to help the student get in. Are these in order? They're not. I'm sorry. I should have said they're the tri they are not in the bill either. Uh, any order. They were allowed to cite as many as they wanted, and most of them cited all of this. They're addressing these concerns in various ways. Uh, lots of uh, schools are are making major efforts to do pre-departure orientation. Are making major efforts to um, analyze applications by various computer. Uh, screens that will pop out the ones that have all been written five or six times in five or six different uh, handwritings. Um, resources trying to teach faculty members how to engage students from Asia. Um, some simple things like teaching faculty members how you pronounce Chinese names so that the student doesn't have to go through the whole semester or year with the name being mispronounced, as still happens on broadcast TV, much to my amazement. I wonder when, now if Xi Jinping is going to be uh, around for life, they should learn how to pronounce she. <laughs> um, 
Um, that's exactly. Another version on Exactly. So if you're interested in more data, um, you can go to our Open Doors website. Uh, our Atlas website tells you about global mobility patterns. And um, a colleague and I wrote a paper on welcoming the way, new wave of Chinese students, really looking at what campuses are doing and should be doing to help ensure that students from China are well integrated. So stop now and turn it over to you. So, uh, uh, following up on, on Peggy, I mean, I've been doing research on um, uh, people who have been returning to China. I actually did my first research in 1991, uh, did interviews with people who had gone out in the 80s back in China. Um, good, good start with the spelling mistake. Right. Now, as we said, China's been one of the most successful countries in generating the reverse migration. Uh, I'm doing a book, so I also wanted to, to do this presentation as a way to kind of prime my own book. Uh, key questions, why do people return? Uh, I've always been interested in the, you know, people talk so much about the role of the state in China bringing people back. I've always been interested in the extent to which the state actually is successful as compared to market opportunities. Um, uh, market opportunities also for scientists who have something special that they can bring back to China. It may not necessarily be that the state's the only one bringing back. Problems faced. Um, I have focused, uh, it's a bit of a hot topic now, on the role of technology. And then the question we were talking before when we did the podcast, which is, uh, are the best returning? You don't need to take, you can ask me for this. And Mr. Scott, no, no, that's okay. Um, so um, I have two key conceptual issues that I raise in this. One is what I call shortage. And that if people, I discovered this through interviews that I was doing uh, back in the early 2000s, that scientists understood in China uh, and businessmen understood that if you go overseas and you find something that's in short supply back in China, that gives you what an economist or political economist would call a comparative advantage back in China. And so the product that you have or the knowledge that you have may be somewhat useful in North America, but it may be even more useful back in China if China has a sort short supply of that. So, and if you think about entrepreneurs who are trying to feed a market, if you think about scientists, the Chinese Academy of Sciences saying, if you can open a laboratory of something that we don't have in China, we'll give you 2.2 million renminbi. That's what the 100 Talents program is all about. So there's an understanding, and I, I can find it in documents and speeches, where Chinese have understood all along to catch up, you got to fill in the shortage. So people understand that that's been a big thing of people coming back. Why people may not be coming back now, I've come to emphasize more on institutional culture. And, and I'll talk more about that. Something about, you know, different ways of thinking about this. You go back, you're running your own science lab in, at, at Columbia, let's say, and no one's telling you what to do. And then you go back to the Chinese Academy of Sciences and you may be given a laboratory, but all of a sudden you discover that you've got an administrator who can tell you how many people you can or can't hire, how you can use your money, uh, and you're a cutting-edge scientist who just came back from you know, some really top work at, you know, in the United States, and this guy hasn't been abroad for 20 years and isn't really up to speed, but he's up to speed enough to slow you down, right? And so I think that that's, and I'll, and I'll that, that was a good metaphor. Um, I, just made it, I just made it up. Um, so, so I thought that I would focus on that. 
uh, in this presentation. But another thing that's important, and it's something I've been focusing on as well, is the role of the party started even before Xi Jinping. It really started in 2003. The party started to take responsibility for talent under Zhang Xinghong. Um, and then the organization department in 2008, 2009, took even more control of it under Li Yuanqiao with the Thousand Talents program. Uh, and now, uh, the party, I was just mentioning before, now if you are a returnee, you are under pressure to join a returnee association, and the United Front Work Department has now been given responsibility for managing those for directing and having influence on those associations. So the party has come to play a more and more dominant role since 2003. These are the case studies that I used uh, uh, in the book. Um, so there's the theory. I've actually uh, done this, so that's good. Um, uh, well, it's better to. That's OK. You've already heard that. Right, so core findings. Right, First, the very best talent overseas are hesitant to return. I, I think that's an important finding. Um, and the easiest way, again, jumping ahead, is if you look at the thousand, so the thousand talents plan is the preeminent plan that was set up by the Communist Party in 2008 to encourage people to come back full time. That's why it was established. The party said, if we take over from the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Personnel, and run this show, we can bring back the best, right? So they set up this program. And lo and behold, I'll show you the data in a few minutes, they were surprised to find out that they couldn't bring back the best. The best were coming back only part-time. The best scientists. The entrepreneurs come back full-time because you have to be there to run your business. But the scientists, the academics, were signing up part-time, which means two to three months a year, and keeping their jobs overseas, right? So that, that Mark, comment, question? I said Hong Kong model for years. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so so, so that, that, you know, was really um, a very important uh, finding, and that these people are not coming back full-time, full, you know. My data actually runs through 2013, so I have real hard data to make these arguments since then, a lot of my comments are, you know, I hear stuff, I talk to people, I do some interviews, I keep up, but I'm a data-driven person for those of you who know my work. So, so my, I have to tell you that my data um, is somewhat limited uh, through two, after 2013. But here's an example, right, of this is the first, first round of our first after two, three years of the Thousand Talents program, right? The A innovative are the scientists and the, sorry, the A innovative, I just went backwards, go back the other way, this happens, right? So where did I go? Nope. This is always, do I want to go this way? Nope. Going back. Yeah. There we go, great. So, so the A innovative are basically the scientists and the academics, right? And you can see that the full-time participants were only 26%, part-time participants were 73.5%. Whereas the entrepreneurs basically go back mostly full-time. So these are the two key categories. And I showed this data to Li Yuan Chao uh, in 2012, who was then the head of the organization department. Uh, and he really liked my findings um, because they supported his argument 
that the problem was the administrators. This guy was really committed to changing the culture of the environment within institutions in China. If you read his writings, he was really committed to it. Um, and I was really a big fan of his. Uh, and now recently he's retired as vice president and has not been arrested, and he's very lucky. <laughs> okay? Now hopefully we'll get access, hopefully we'll get access to him again. Um, so to, to test if the best were coming back, um, I was able to collect, uh, uh, I got a research team, and we collected the CVs of 1,400, just about 1,400 returnees. We went online and we could get their CVs. And by looking at their CVs, we could see where they were publishing. And we then, using the impact factor of the journal in which they were publishing, we then gave everybody a score of what their impact was. So we could say, you know, so-and-so professor from so-and-so university, he's got a score of, let's say, you know, 8.5, uh, and, and we could compare across programs. So we have the three key programs that we looked at was the Chinese Academy of Sciences, 100 Talents, set up in 1996. The Jung Scholars Program, which brings people to universities predominantly, set up in 1998. And then the 1,000 Talents Program, set up in 2008, right? Um, and, and so we have uh, we got a lot of the CVs, and we did this analysis. And so then I do we do statistical I do statistical analysis. I'm sorry. Um, uh, and as I said, the dependent variable. What we're trying to explain is how good are their publications, right? So everybody gets a score, and we can evaluate all of the people, and we can evaluate all the people in the different programs, just to say which programs are publishing people's publishing the best. It's the only measure that we can use as saying, I see Joan looking there like, really? Um, it's the only measure that we can use that is really an empirical comparative measure that would allow me to say, look, people under the Thousand Talents or people full-time under the Thousand Talents program are better than those people, you know, part-time. It's actually the reverse, okay? So, what do I find? Um, the quality of the people who return part-time and maintain an academic post overseas are better than those who return full-time. That's what the data show, right? So this may be the reason why, but it's very clear they could not, as of 2013, they could not bring back the best people. And here, just for those of you like Joan who knows statistics, here's, here's a multiple regression analysis, and you can see that the the Thousand Talents plan part-time people, statistically significant, that they are the best scholars in terms of their publications. They are the best, and they're not going back full-time. Okay, everybody else, the baseline for this is the Chung Jung scholars who went back full-time. So these are clearly the best people. Okay, you with me? Okay, so um, then we want to look at CAS. And I can go with CAS. CAS became very defensive. Chinese Academy of Science is very defensive. They didn't want to share information with us. Um, we phoned them once. We tried to get lists so that we could select people from the lists to build this. They wouldn't give it to us. 
And I'm relatively convinced that it's still, though it's probably improved a lot in the last couple of years, uh, by Chun Li, who's the president of CAS, a returnee, a PhD himself, foreign, foreign PhD, trying to change CAS, but he hasn't been that successful. And I think it's still an inbred, somewhat of an inbred institution. Um, and these are just a list of the reasons why uh, many directors of CAS institutes have no overseas education. So here you have Chinese Academy of Sciences, 2002, right? 39% of the directors of CAS institutes had no overseas education. The vast majority were visiting scholars. And you know, visiting scholars is what we call in Chinese, qi ma kan You ride the horse and you just go, oh, look at the flowers, aren't they nice, right? So it's imp it had improved a lot by 2013, but the visiting scholars still dominated. And so I'm of the belief that there is a war going on in China between visiting scholars running institutions and foreign PhDs who have come back and who are fighting to take over institutions. That war has been going on for a while, and I think it's probably still going on. And C is probably helping the visiting scholars because he doesn't trust foreign trained PhDs. Okay? So, um, third thing, oh, so here's the data which shows that even people under the, who went to CAS under the Thousand Talents program were better than CAS's own recruited people under its Hundred Talents program, right? So the Chinese Academy, the, the, the CCP could recruit people under the Thousand Talents program and send them to CAS. It gave CAS some seats, some, some positions. And so it would, it would vet the people going into CAS much more rigidly much more strictly than caste itself vetted at the people because they were using board, they were using panels of international scholars, whereas caste internally vetting, thousand talents externally vetting. And so as a result of that, the people going to caste under the caste's program were actually weaker than people going to caste as selected by the Communist Party. So again, that suggests there's something about CAS's institutions, its, its institution culture, that's not so good. Um, now, uh, let's see. So, uh, after watching, uh, I, I won't go into detail now, I, I had a sense of this battle between the visiting scholars and the returned PhDs. And so we wanted to test that, right? And so one of the ways my research assistant and I decided to test it was to make a list of all professors, all presidents of, the, of something like, what, 26 or 27 universities over 12 years. Um, so we wind up with 276 presidents of those universities over that 12-year period, right? Of, and then we, we tested certain hypotheses. One was um, what we want to explain is which of the universities are recruiting more top talent. The hypothesis being, if the president of your university, look at me, if the president of your university is a foreign PhD, he's more likely to recruit more foreign PhDs. And if the president of the university is a visiting scholar, spent two years abroad looking at flowers from horseback, 
that he's afraid of the threat. He's been building his network. As you said, he may not have the same contacts, right, as the overseas PhD. So then it would be, we wanted to see if, you know, China was on a trajectory, if they want to do better and better, it's, you know, maybe they need more foreign PhDs as presidents of universities, right? So this is, we collected the data for this, okay? And uh, here you can see, right, a large number of people internally promoted. So one of the variables we use is, was the person brought in from the outside to the university, or was the person um, uh, raised up within the university, assuming that someone raising, who was raised, who rose within the university, is going to be more conservative, less willing to reach out for foreign PhDs. He's got a Guan Xihu, he's got his network to protect, right? And we ran the data, uh, well I can just, so university presidents who were externally promoted and then brought into the university, who also have a chance to be recruited, they recruited more high-end talent. <clears throat> so if they were younger, they felt they had a future, they wanted, right, but overall, presidents who were brought in, as well as sort of people who had foreign PhDs, sorry, sorry right? Um, they're more likely to it. It's the same one here, model two. Um, I can actually, well, model three, the findings hold up regardless of the age. Um, we also looked at reform and presidents who have overseas PhDs were more willing to introduce various reforms within the universities. Um, and the, uh, the, that it would have a long-term effect. So here you can see the, the data show very clearly if the president of the university was internally promoted, he brought back fewer global talents. If the president of the university an overseas PhD, he brought back more talent, right? And, and so if there's reforms done within the university, more talent. Right? So the argument here would, would be if China wants to have better, I mean, it's, maybe it's a, you know, a Western, uh, you know, obnoxious Westerner telling Chinese that if you want to do well in the world, you have to be more like Westerners. Um, but nevertheless, the data do show that people who have been trained overseas uh, do make the university uh, or are willing to bring back very talented people. How am I doing time-wise? Good. Okay, so now I want to turn to the second part of this, which is really the returning for a job, right? To follow up on Peggy's uh, Peggy's point, uh, and I've had two. I have two data sets for this. So the first data set was in 2006, 2007. I did three surveys with the Ministry of Education. Pretty surprising, um, and we have returnees from Canada, returnees from Japan, and returnees from Hong Kong. Um, and they did the survey with me, I paid for it. Uh, this was a day when the Ministry of Education was much more open and, and very helpful. Um, and the guy running it was a good friend of mine. And then the Center for China and Globalization has been collecting, doing surveys year on year on year. They publish blue books, right? Um, I'm not ever quite sure how they get their people that they interview or fill out the questionnaires, but nonetheless, I have their 2016 data set. They gave it to me, partly because I'm a vice president of the organization. They gave me the data set, and my RA just finished running the data. 
Okay, so that's why I was up till three o'clock last night trying to make sure that, yeah. Anyway, so over time I've collected, so one of the first questions is how long does it take to find a job? Big question, you know, because the argument has been um, this one here, is this gonna, the argument here, high die. People know the expression, some of you know, some of you may not. So high overseas die means to wait, right? So the question is, when people come back from overseas, it used to be they were highway, they were the returning sea turtles, right? They were great, glorious. And then all of a sudden the highway became high die. They became seaweed, right? This started in 2005. The expression emerged for the first time that people returning from overseas were waiting a long time for jobs and they just weren't as glorious as these returning sea turtles from overseas, the PhDs basically who had been studying overseas. Um, and so I did a study back before and I, my slogan was high dai bu sun zai, which sounds really nice, right? That the, the, the high dai, the, the, the weeds don't really, seaweeds don't really exist. And this is the data to show this, right? So this is a big thing for you, Peggy, right? So here, returnees from Hong Kong 2007. I have a category of before returning, did they have a job? Did they find a job within one to three months? Did they find a job within three to six months and longer than six months? Now, according to most international measures, you have up until six months to find a job before you're considered unemployed. That's the ILOs, the Brits. So these, all of these people up to this point would not be considered unemployed, right? But even so, so the number here in brackets, right? This number here, these are people who have a job within three months. So 78% of the people who returned from Hong Kong in 2007, from Japan, from Canada, look, Japanese, 80% of them. And then the numbers do drop off. These are 2006. So there clearly is, I think it's clear, you've got about a five to 10% drop off. So it is tougher to find a job, but still not bad, right? So 70% of all the people who returned in the CCG survey had a job. That's when, when Henry makes those points about the, you know, the difficulties. So, I mean, uh, clearly there's some difficulties. Here you have percentages, this is just Right, but here's the, so it's these three really basically against these two, right? Those are the key. And you can see them, you know, so here you have 6%, or here you have 10% and 10% looking for work longer than six months. So there is some, there is some loss. Income, so this is 206, right? That's why I said during the interview, master's degrees, right? These are people who returned from Canada, Japan, and Hong Kong versus a national level survey that some friends of mine did and I got a question, a couple questions in there. 2006, so as of 2006, the returnees making at least almost double, right? That's why I said here it's almost two times, right? Not just double, but much more, right? For some college, but here's your masters, right? Right, so, so in 2006, these people were doing much better if you went overseas to get an education. Right? Are these annual salary? This is 2006, their salary in 2006. Please do ask me questions because if you don't know stuff, they're not going to know and I'm going very fast. So the right? returnees with the PhD are 58? 
59,000? This, this is 58,000 renminbi um, oh. a year in 206. So why are the PhDs earning less than the masters? Because the masters are going into business and the PhDs are academics. Welcome to my life. Put a great straight line. Listen, can I take you on the road? You know, that's a great straight Why do you think I stay in Hong Kong? I get paid a decent salary. You know, nowhere else do academics get paid a decent salary, right? Okay, so, so, what I did, the bulk of this, which, uh, I'm very excited about presenting this data, actually, is there are explanations as to why people return. And one of the explanations was always, well, they failed. They're just not very good. And if they failed, then they actually are not very good. You know, maybe they're coming home because they're just not so good. What about the people who are going back because they see opportunities in China? So the old the literature used to talk about push-pull. Those were the two people looked at that, right? People who were pushed out and people who were pulled out, right? So I reversed this. So I looked at people coming back. And are people coming back because they're being kicked out of the country, that they or they can't succeed where they were, or are they going back because they see opportunity? So if there's a pull hypothesis, those are the people who see an opportunity back in China, who have learned something, who have developed some skill, you know, who have good connections, can do a better job. So these are the people that China really wants, right? And then there's family reasons, right? So the length of time spent in finding a job in 206, I'll show you, if it's okay, show you the 206, 207 data, and then show you the 2016 data, okay? So in 206, CCP members spent much less time looking for a job. The data show that. We know if they were a party member. So we run the data. Do I have the results, right? So here, you can see party membership statistically significant, right? Don't worry about the direction, but party membership statistically significant. Children of officials, right? Easier to find a job, right? The pull factors, so if they went back because they believed there was something that they had that was good in China or something in China, opportunities pulling them back they got a better salary. So they were the winners, right? So the reverse of that is people who were pushed back, who pushed out of the, their job, out of their position overseas, and they did poor, right? Um, and family, for this, doesn't matter as much, okay? So, uh, and, and again, years of foreign work, important. If you had a job overseas, it's always been important, back to the early 2000s. Kids who could get a job overseas, and then go back, always did better, okay? What about satisfaction with their new job? So here you can see if their work in China is related to their job back in China, statistically significant, they're much happier. That's a good thing. <coughs> Pull factor, are they pulled back to China because they've got some opportunity that's related to what they studied overseas? They're much happier, right? So there's statistical significance again, okay? So this stuff all makes sense, but uh, this is for 2006. Was the investment worth it? Um, I think I've moved this around maybe once, it doesn't matter. Was the investment worth it? That's a big question, right? That's a really big question. Um, if you are a Chinese student 
and you're going to spend 60,000 US dollars to get a two-year MA in England, how long is it going to take you to get that money back? If your parents are 55, close to retirement, they're going to invest all their money in you, you know, uh, is, is, it a, is it a worthwhile investment? You know, that's a really big deal. Uh, people who are rich, it may not matter, but for many, many Chinese, it really matters. So CCG findings, 27% thought the benefits were less than the cost, right? 18% were uncertain. So 36% thought the benefits were greater than the costs, right? Um, and I think that that's not a very large number. I think that's somewhat surprising, right? Um, that 27% uh, thought the benefits were less than the costs. So they had spent 27% of the people thought that they had spent money overseas and it wasn't such a good investment. Um, uh, how competitive did they feel? Uh, survey that I did in 2006, 87% of people felt that they were more competitive than people who hadn't gone overseas. The numbers are down by 2016. So they feel less competitive. They still, 48%, this is CCG data, 48% still feel that they are more competitive, but the numbers are down, I think, from 10 years before because for lots of reasons, right? Reasons to return, here's a list of the reasons from the CCG, right? Some of these are positive, some of these are negative, some are push, some are pull, some are family, right? So some would say I'm going back because good economic prospects, right? Uh, just for Joan, these people really annoy me. They do a double-barreled question, right? Really annoying when they say political. Two questions in the same question, you never want to do that in the survey, right? Because you don't know which answer they've given you, right? So that's always annoying. But good prospects for my major, right? You can see that. And then here's the result of the 2016 data. So push here on the left, time to find a job, those people who were pulled back, who went back because they thought they had an opportunity in China, they took less time to find a job. Those people who are currently satisfied with their work, if they were pulled back, they were more satisfied. If they were pushed back, meaning failure in the West, they were disappointed in their job, right? Um, in terms of life satisfaction, being pulled back, going going back for positive reasons is positive, right? So all of this actually fits there. This is CCG data, so we ran this, right? The interesting thing is that, so, so those people who go back for family reasons, they tend to do poorly. It's sort of a family crisis, something happens, they have to go back, right? So they're they, they uh, takes them longer to find a job. Uh, they, no, they may find a job quickly because they need to, but work is sat less satisfying, their life is less satisfying, they think that it was, the costs were less, were more than the benefits, all this kind of results. So this really supports the argument that people who make a conscious decision to go back because they see opportunities that they're doing better. Uh, in terms of uh, having gone back uh, 
pushed back because they failed in America or they had to do something to help their family. I can stop here. Is that okay? Well, I've got a little bit more. Really? I don't want to. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I mean, I have more data on things like. Maybe I have more data on things like um, again. Oh, sideways. Okay. Oh, this is an interesting finding that we did. I did one other survey. You still with me, or you, you want me to stop now? Are you still with me? Okay. So this was a different survey that I did. This was one of my graduate students who's now at Princeton um, in the PhD program. I organized um, a survey. Uh, interestingly, where we got the survey. The survey is of young people who came back to China with an MA and who joined an online dating service to find other people who had studied overseas as their partner. This woman in Shanghai who runs an online dating service uh, for Haiwei, for returnees, right? Predominantly Haiwei. So we got 120 people approximately who answered the survey. And then we did some looking around for people who hadn't gone overseas to make a comparative case, right? And this is a really interesting finding because here, this works, right? So if you had, so model one is basically doesn't say anything about their family. Model one doesn't include their family. It just asks age, sex, and other things. And we find that if they have an overseas MA or an overseas MA in undergraduate, they have gotten a better salary, significantly better salary. So again, here's a data set. It's not CCG's data set. It's a bit of a random data set, but it's not bad. I mean, we collect, I collected this, right, and with, with my, my former master's Right? And, but then we include in the data set family income and whether either parent was an official or either parent as a manager. And look what happens. Income as an explanation drops, almost drops out. Right? It's only statistically significant at the point one level. So all of a sudden, this is not such a powerful explanation for the difference between the returnees and the non-returnees, the real powerful explanation is your family income and whether your parents were official. So again, going overseas isn't what made some of these people, if you don't ask these kinds of questions, what you may think, oh, they went overseas and look, they've gotten a really good salary, but the truth is that they went overseas and they got a really good salary, why? Partly because they went overseas, but also partly because their parents were officials or, or business people could get them out, could bring them back, and help them find a job. Right? So I, I, I like that one too. Thank you. <laughs> and I got more data, but anyway, thanks. Near each other in Hong Kong for many years. David, can I ask you about the incentive structures of the government-sponsored programs? Is there a, a common 
incentive structure in terms of salary or research funding or all that, or are all the different institutions, including CAS and the various universities, are they basically having a variety of different incentive structures? Variety. So they're kind of competing. So can CAS. You, can you tell us what those incentive structures are? Well, the best, initially the best program was Chinese Academy of Sciences, 2.2 million renminbi, your own laboratory. Um, uh, you could use that money to buy machinery. 20% uh, of that money could be used for salary, to supplement your salary. Um, and uh, very often these were recent postdocs who immediately became professors. They were promoted back in the early 2000s. And I wrote something against that and tried to tell Cass that it was a really stupid policy and then they, after five, then they decided that every five years they renew reevaluate the people because you got to be promoted as a professor and then you could sit on your butt uh, and you're a professor for the rest of your life. So CAS was very generous. Um, Thousand Talents initially was a million renminbi. I mean, I can get you the data to go into detail, but uh, Thousand Talents was not as good incentive system. It also was not to tenured positions at universities. It was a five-year deal, which also was pretty stupid. Because uh, why is someone going to give up uh, a, a tenured position at a second, good second tier American university for an unknown future, right? Um, and the Chengjung, Chengjung scholars, I forget how much they got exactly, but a, you know, maybe a million, million and a half RMB. Uh, a lot of it's prestige, a lot of it's. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in a room where it used to be where a thousand talents businessman walked in and people were like, wow, he's a thousand talents. You know, he's a Chenren Ji Hua, Chia Jia, right? He's a thousand talents entrepreneur. Wow, amazing. So, um, but I think that uh, now all the local governments have different programs. Uh, Shenzhen has the Peacock program. Uh, lots of people are offering all kinds of incentives because they're all competing. So if you walk into the Pearl River Delta, right, Shenzhen's got its programs, and now um, uh, Dongwan has got its programs because it's trying to pull people over from Shenzhen to set up in Dongguan. And then you've got Nansha, which is, you know, just, you know, you know just, these are all towns counties within the Pearl River Delta that are pouring money at these uh, businessmen, largely. So they're not doing the universities. They're looking for businessmen to come back and set up shop. And they're giving them all kinds of incentives. John, and identify yourself. I'm, I'm John Lowe, and I work here for the National Committee. Uh, I'm wondering how, uh, how we extrapolate. I noticed the data sets were Hong Kong, Japan, both depressed economies where job opportunities are not enormous, uh, I, I presume, even These for... These were 206, 207, so Japan could be slightly depressed. But, uh, and also, and I know you have Canada in there, yeah. but being American-centric sure, yeah, and believing not, that... And I'm not American, so I don't give a damn. <laughs> but, you know, we, we like to think that the U.S. is attracting the very, the, the top of the, right. the best and brightest. So. Is it, I mean, is your feeling that this is completely, one can extrapolate and assume that the, the return and the push and pull reasons and all of that 
extend to the United States as well, or would there be sure. some? Well, the two the two hundred one six CCG data is from all parts of the world, uh, but mostly probably. You know, I know. So, for example, the thousand talents, um, sixty percent of them or more are uh, American, are being pulled back from America or are joining, uh, having been based in America. Uh, America does much better in terms of the scores of publication, uh, in terms of, uh, I'll come back another time and I'll give you, I have a little paper on, on sort of why China should be nice to America in terms of science. And the answer is that the people who are coming, you know, that if you look at the thousand talents, uh, China's doing really well from people in America. Uh, in terms of the quality of the publications relative to people studying in Canada or people living in Canada or other parts of the world. Uh, uh, it, it's, it's good for America. It's good for China here in America uh, to be able to, to get these people and to get them to go back part-time, not necessarily full-time. So there's a lot of labs. And people sometimes don't even want to put this on their CV. You know, they're a little cautious. Sometimes maybe you don't want to put it on your CV. Green sweater. That's you. Yeah. Um, hi, identify yourself. Um, <coughs> I am a journalist. Um, I was a Chinese student for five, six, five years, and um, I've been covering this uh, trend of influx of Chinese students into university, uh, American universities, uh, since I was a college student. I, I guess, I was also part of a fraction of your data set. Um, Thank you. I, I looked into um, the date, uh, the growth of Chinese uh, uh, student population data. Uh, I found that it, uh, the growth of Chinese student uh, population slowed for the first time last year since uh, uh, since the recession, um, and the uh, the the uh, the trend really peaked around I think 2010. Uh, that year we had a 30% um, increase in Chinese students. I wonder uh, if you have, uh, if you can give reasons why, uh, you know, the growth to so last year, what are the reasons behind that? Well, I, I actually do have the, the sort of a year by year growth, and, and you're right, it did peak in, well, it was 2, 11, 12, um, and then it started declining, but it, it has been declining ever since then. It isn't just this last year. Um, part of the issue is when you say um, it percentage change, uh, the percentage change is going to be very big when you're starting with small base. The bigger the base gets, the less you're going to see 30% year on year increase. So a good part of that is when you know, we're moving from having 200,000 Chinese students to 350,000. That's part of it. Um, the other, I think, though, is that um, Chinese students, um, they have many opportunities to go many places and they're being, and, and the opportunities at home are expanding. So the massification of Chinese higher education has meant that people who couldn't get in anywhere decent uh, at home and therefore went to maybe a third or fourth tier US university might be staying home or might be going to Japan or might be going to some other place. Um, Australia has been very actively recruiting students, um, undergraduate students particularly. So the diversity of opportunity elsewhere 
and the opportunities at home, I think, are, are both parts of that slowing. The Brits work really hard at it, too, yeah. because uh, there are a lot of British universities who were, on, were just sort of colleges, lower quality right. colleges, until Blair made them all universities, but didn't give them any money. <laughs> so they were under enormous right. pressure to recruit. Yeah. And so there's a huge, I mean, 1.50% of all uh, master students going overseas who are going to England. Yeah. Um, can I ask, can I yeah. ask you Let a me question? just finish that part. One sure. thing, all that being said, we still host way more Chinese students than any other host country by, by multiple factors. And in our surveys, we still find that the U.S. is the destination of choice. If they can get into a U.S. institution, that's where they'll go. If they get into it, but they don't get a visa for months and months and months, and the Australians and Brits give them a visa first, then we may lose them. So my question is, is there some saturation point at this? I mean, everybody's sort of assuming it's just going to keep on growing, 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 growing. Is there a saturation point where they're just going to, you know, maybe that's part of this too? Um, what we're seeing is that some state-funded universities are starting to put a cap on international students. And uh, California was one of them. They, they, they said, we're not going to um, accept flat tuition from the state legislature unless you let us a uh, host an infinite number of international students and the legislature caved and said, okay, you will raise the tuition, uh, the, the contribution uh, from the state if you put a cap on international students. Not on Chinese particularly. Um, the issue of whether uh, a university should have an unlimited number of Chinese compared to others is also being decided on a university by university basis and many universities are deciding they want to balance out and make sure that they have other sources of international students. So every university has their own foreign policy, basically. But and there is a bottomless pool. There is a bottomless pool of Chinese students who will continue to keep coming yeah. and coming and coming and coming and coming. And the top tier institutions already uh, have, you know, decided no, we only want this amount or that amount. Right. The the ones that are in financial difficulty, maybe you know, you all come. Um, David, yesterday in the Washington Post. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom Grunfeld. I'm a professor emeritus at SUNY. Um, yesterday in the Washington Post, there was an article about science in China um, and about how it's speeding ahead of the United States in almost every field while the United States and this administration is pulling back. But one of the, and it talked about returning Chinese coming back, being lured by these large amounts of money to build labs and so on. But it also talked about, it also interviewed some Europeans who had been here and have decided to go to China. So these are non-Chinese who are giving up American research posts for Chinese posts because it's more lucrative and their visas are easier. And I'm wondering if this is an anomaly, if this is a phenomenon, because the article didn't really, it interviewed these people, but it didn't give you a, a broader perspective uh, of this whole so, 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 so the Thousand Talents program has a foreign Thousand Talents component. So the party has decided, and this was back under Lee and Chow back in 2008, 2009, to recruit foreigners. Um, I remember being in a meeting where Lee and Chow and Wang Yang, uh, I'm name dropping, right? Uh, Wang Yang were walking around the room shaking hands with all these foreigners. Uh, one was from Poland, one was Japanese. These were all pretty good scientists who had already come to, Ch to China and set up laboratories. But when I showed you that picture of me giving, shaking hands with Li Yan Chao, when I gave him that talk 
there was another guy sitting beside me who also gave him a presentation. The two of us were the two foreigners who were giving him presentations. There were four other Chinese. The two of, and the guy sitting beside me was a Nobel Prize winner in the genome and ran a company in Shenzhen, was partner in a Shenzhen company. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, I can't remember exactly how to, I always forget how to pronounce his name. He's a Nobel Prize winner. He's from Israel. He set up a laboratory at Zhejiang University. Uh, part-time he's with us at UST and part-time in Israel and part-time in China. So there's a lot of that going on and the Chinese government is spending money on it. There were stories, you know, ex uh, where people would go back under those situations, maybe for the Changzheng Scholar, Thousand Talents, Science, I think, magazine ran a story where the guy discovered that he was being ripped off, yeah. right? But those are the stories that you, so you're getting the highs and you're getting the lows. Big successes and getting ripped off. The, the bigger question is sort of how many people of, you know, really good people are going and setting up shop in China. And how many are setting up shop there and in a few other places, including their home country, a third country, sure. uh, Saudi Arabia, wherever, you know. Right. You know, the Saudis are throwing a lot of money exactly. at this. They just, they just recruited my university president to be the president of KAUST, of uh, King Abdullah, mm -hmm. uh, University of Science and Technology, Tony Chan's leaving us to go to KAUST for, yeah, for five years. Well, then that raises another question, if I may jump in. Do you have data on Hong Kong with the political tensions, perhaps economic issues? Are Chinese willing to go to Hong Kong universities? Are foreigners going and staying? What's happening there? Okay, so, so you want some comments on Hong Kong. Well, so, there's a whole bunch of questions that can go with that. You know, um, one is uh, mainland students coming to Hong Kong, mm -hmm. right? Mainland students continue to come to Hong Kong. Uh, they come uh, undergraduate. Uh, we offer them money. We try and steal the best, which we succeed at. We always shoot for the best, highest Gaokao students we can get. Uh, Hong Kong universities do that. Uh, our graduate students are almost all mainlanders uh, uh, in social science, uh, in the sciences as well. Um, some of them go back to China, get PhDs and go back to China. Some of them, uh, about a third of them now, want to try and figure out ways to stay in Hong Kong. Um, uh, the group that's doing the best in terms of coming down to Hong Kong and staying in Hong Kong tend to be students from Guangzhou who have Cantonese. And you can see that they can get along much better with the Hong Kong students because they see themselves as sharing the same culture and, and you know, screw those guys up in Beijing, right? We all agree on that, right? Um, and I've seen that in my, in my classroom uh, where they get along pretty well. And they'll stay a uh, number of years, but a lot of kids are going back to uh, Shenzhen, just going, mainlanders will go back across the border. Hong Kong kids don't want to do that, which is a problem. Um, in terms of recruiting professors to come and, and teach in Hong Kong, uh, I think that in the sciences it's still fine, in engineering and business it's still fine. I think that so far it's okay, um, uh, but it may be getting tight, a little tighter in Hong Kong uh, uh, in terms of, uh, well, no, I, nobody has told me I can't say anything. 
So people always ask me that question, right? Can I, can I say whatever I want to say? I can't. You know, I can call anybody any name I want. But I don't think that these days I would go and call Xi Jinping by a bad name. I used to call Li Peng by bad names and not worry about him, right? I think that in that sense the climate's changed a little slightly and I'd want to be a little more cautious about that. Call it what you will, you know? But I always used to malign Li Peng. I mean, today's the perfect day to describe Li Peng in bad terms because today's June 4th and he was the guy who declared martial law, you know, even though it wasn't his idea. Joan and then Mr. Xia. Yeah. So speaking about the, I'm Joan Kaufman, and I'm from the Schwarzman Scholars Program. Um, uh, so you know, speaking about the political climate, I have two short questions. One, is it a political liability to have been educated in the United States and seek a, you know, a faculty position in China right now? Is that you know that a, a black mark actually to have a, a, a especially a U.S. but a foreign PhD? And second, who is actually applying for these academic positions in China? Are the foreigners applying? Is that are they, uh, you know, are they easy to recruit for? Um, and I don't necessarily mean the thousand talents positions, but given how hard it is to find academic jobs in general for PhDs from the U.S., Canada, Japan, everywhere else, right? Um, does China, where the you know educational market is actually growing and there is money and people are recruiting, is that an attractive place? Are people applying for these jobs, and are they reasonable candidates? And I'm asking in a very personal way because we're just you know recruiting for our program, and you know we just want to know what the pool is like and whether it. You can probably doing. you probably have better connections with Schwartzman to find out if there's a position, how many people are applying. It used to be there'd be a hundred or more, several hundred people applying for jobs in Beidang or in Tsinghua, you know, and the vast majority of them would be foreigners. I mean, the vast majority of them would be mainlanders, mainlanders. right, mainlanders who were looking to go back. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think it depends on the field. I think that in the sciences, there's nothing to stop you uh, from going back except that institutional culture or the dirty air in Beijing, <laughs> right? Um, uh, but I think that overall, you know, the, the, in the sciences, I don't think there's that sense that it's getting tough yet. Though again, internet access. You know, I keep saying that. You want to be a world-class science power, guys. You can't keep tightening up on the internet. You know, people will complain about that. And some people will say, well, do I want to spend so many hours trying to get around the internet when I can keep a job in North America and if what I'm really dedicated to doing is my science research, then maybe I won't go back. You know, because at least here I have free access. Uh, the first question was... Is it a liability to have a PhD right. in the United States? I mean, I've heard that, actually, that, uh, you know, under, under she, that... Uh, I would say probably in the sciences it's not. Not in the sciences, yeah. But in the social sciences. sciences. It's starting to become an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, there are rumors going around about someone who had been a dean of a university in Shanghai, of the School of Social Science, who lost his deanship and, in fact, may have even left China. Uh, I have to confirm that. His card is sitting on my desk at home in Hong Kong, and I keep meaning to send him an email and saying, is it true that you actually were asked to leave? Because? Because he's an American PhD. 
because he's an American. But there are so many of them. But, but, the but my sense is that they may, you know, if what you're saying is true, what we will see is slowly over time, those people will lose positions in the social sciences. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not going to lose their positions, I think, in business and economics. Or science and technology. Right? Science and technology, for sure. Yeah. But I'm thinking of all the people who are uh, American-trained PhDs running departments of economics or schools of business, schools of finance in a lot of the Tsai you know, in the, the fight, economic and finance universities in Shanghai, in Chengdu, in Beijing, all around the country. You know, those guys, many of them are American-trained PhDs who are part-time deans going back to run a program, um, and whether those people are going to feel, I think those people will be okay. But what you also said when we were talking earlier is, uh, one, is it a liability to have that uh, PhD in the U.S.? And also, are you going to want to teach in China in the social sciences yeah. right now? You're going to tighten control departments and of content. So it's kind of a, you know, you got to figure out, is the push-pull? Well, there's a great, well, there's a great story, which I know is true, is that uh, Renmin University uh, had a, uh, uh, was it maybe a school of philosophy, and now they have set up a school of Marxism-Leninism. Yeah. <laughs> and they've combined the two schools. And the former, uh, expat, the former foreign trained dean of the School of Philosophy is no longer the dean of the School of Philosophy, but a homegrown person is now the dean of the School of Philosophy and Marxist-Leninist Studies. So that's just, that, that I think, that kind of trend is going to happen. And I think it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not good for China, you know, but, you know, but it's for them to decide. Okay. Uh, I'm very sure. I really appreciate <coughs> Sorry. Please identify yourself. My, my name is Sean Shang. I, I used to be the vice president of Shanghai Business Sports Association. Oh. So I actually <laughs> very interested in your involvement and many new nation activities. But I still want some updating from CCG. The second, you mentioned salary from, uh, for 2006. This is a long time ago, correct? You know, 10 years. And this is a big change. So some some people in the, in the you know, in academic people, we have the overseas, from overseas, still higher than the general income. They still? Higher than income. The people in Shanghai. When I come to the you know, Shanghai Jordan University, I, I met the you know, chancellor and talked with them. They can hire people asking to find the business schools to do. So they can spend a one million RMB for one year. So you're asking me you know, what you find that people want to find for the basically have the Chinese uh, and American scholars. So yeah, one million RMB. A business school, professor, business school dean in North America makes more money than that. Yes, so a lot this, more, twice as much as yes, that. Yes, this is more. this. Uh, I think that's academic universities. Uh, the dean is not to the one hundred or not for one thousand. They actually the high. You know, they, they all depends on the different the level of the universities. They have the money budgets and right. You know, budget. <coughs> so I just uh, have the two. Yeah, ideas. my sense is well, we were talking about before <coughs> about about the MAs or the MBAs or the, yeah. you know, I still think there's a premium for yeah. studying abroad, but it's like 20%, 30%, you know, that you'll get a little bit more than if you, if you, uh, than the people who are, are homegrown. 
I think there's still that. Um, uh, in terms of the reliability of the data, well, I can tell you that the next report that they do on reverse migrants, on reverse entrepreneurs, the data will be reliable because I'm running the survey. Entrepreneurs who, we're going to do 100 entrepreneurs, uh, 33 in Beijing, 33 in Shanghai, and 33 in Chengdu, and then also do 33 local businessmen, um, which will be comparative to a study I did in 2004 on exact similar similar group um, in 2004, which which I wrote about. Um, you know, I still think that, that Henry's data is pretty good. Um, it, it's but you know you have to think you know if if his, even if it's not representative, but then when I'm doing the regret the comparatives within yeah. it, that's more likely to show the relationship of these people. In his survey, so you could say maybe the survey is not collected um, uh, an unbiased way, but then it's very hard to collect unbiased surveys now. So this would be like you know Henry rotates from year to year with different headhunting firms, and they put an announcement on their website saying that they're doing these surveys, and people will then go and do the the, the question fill in the questionnaire on these websites of the headhunting firms and then Henry gets access to the data. That's how a lot of this is done. So you could say maybe they're not 100% representative, but when you do the, the comparison of what percentage of so have, have this value and you know, the, like the, the push-pull, you know, may, maybe you could say that there's fewer people who come back because they're pulled back. Maybe more people are pushed, but still. But I appreciate your question and look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah, me too. Yes, we've reached the witching hour. Please join me in thanking our speakers for very stimulating.